Hi, I'm Naomi Murphy and this is the Locked Up Living podcast where we talk with a wide range of people about harsh aspects of institutional life. We also explore some of the ways to overcome them and to grow and develop. I'm David Jones. So join us every Wednesday morning, 6 o'clock UK time, for a fresh podcast. Given we are into election year, we're really interested to hear what each party is offering up on issues that matter to us, such as health, justice and immigration. Today, we are very lucky to have along Gina Miller. Gina is a businesswoman and activist who's probably most well known for her action following the referendum in 2016, which led to Britain leaving the EU. Gina initiated the 2016 case against the British government for its assumption they had the right to invoke Article 50 without reference to Parliament. She founded the True and Fair campaign in 2012, calling for an end to financial misconduct in the investment and pension industries, and more recently started a political party with the same name. Welcome, Gina Miller. My pleasure to be on the podcast with you, and I love the title. Thank you. We're really pleased to have you along, Gina. Welcome. So, Gina, you broke international awareness at the time um, when the government decided to call a referendum on staying in the EU. Why did you decide to get so actively involved in speaking up about this? It's, it was a mix of um, fatalism. I think I was always interested to do something like this. Uh, and the other part of it is um, just anger and frustration that uh, p- politicians were behaving in such a totally irresponsible manner, where they had politicized an issue, which was actually fundamental to the prosperity, safety and freedoms of our country. And to use that as a political football to heal, particularly the inner machinations and chaos of the Conservative Party, to me was possibly one of the most irresponsible things that we had done in the last few decades as a country and as as a political class, um, because it would fundamentally not just change the way the UK works, but it would change our relationship on the international stage as well. As And what the government were trying to do was to try and manufacture a situation that was almost impossible and make it about the law. So they were finding a new enemy prior to the referendum, it was the EU that they could blame for their political failings. Now they were going to blame the law and the courts. And I just thought this is not just going to change us as a country, but it's going to change the fact that uh, we are seen and respected as a country who abides by the rule of law. So there were many reasons to worry, and I'm a worrier. (laughs) So um, it tends to be the reasons why I step up and do my activism. It's not, people have a perception it's because I'm fearless. tends to be because I'm fearful of something. Thank you. And you weren't you weren't new to activism, were you? Because you founded the True and Fair Foundation um, in 2012, as, as David said. You know, what were the what were the aims of the foundation and why why was that so controversial? It's funny, Naomi, people think I popped up from nowhere, and I say quite often that it took me 30 odd years to pop up from nowhere. <laughs> you know, like many activists and, and, and people, business people whose success doesn't happen overnight, or, or you know, what you going onto the public arena doesn't happen overnight. It takes a lot of hard work and a lot of successes and probably even more failures to then eventually end up where you are. And, and for me, I've 
I've always had an incredibly strong sense of justice um, growing up at the knees of my parents, my father and my mother, both were very activist in their own ways. So it was something that was endemic in our in our household. It's something we were all brought up with. I mean, I'm the only one of, of the rest of our family, but my entire um, family are actually medics or somewhere in the medical field. So I'm the only one who didn't go into, into medicine, but we all have a very vocational approach to life and, and our civic responsibility. So it's something I've always done, but I haven't tended to go out and seek causes. It's things I come up against in my everyday life and I can really talk about it from a place of understanding and empathy. So for me, my activism actually started um, with my eldest daughter, who's now, or will be soon, 36. But uh, when she was born, she was starved of oxygen. And at that time in 1988, there was little support in schools for um, children on the SEND uh, spectrum. You had to, I mean, it wasn't even acknowledged or recognized. You had to have expensive or money to go and see expensive consultants and doctors and get sort of uh, reports that way. That's when you could get support. So, and to me, that seemed so immoral and unjust that a child and parents wouldn't get the help. So that she, she awoke the lioness, if you like, in me. And I started fighting for her, which then led to, because I'd studied law, I understood that, you know, you need policy changes to bring real change and legal changes. So I started using what I'd learned from a, my professional training, if you like, to look to see if we could bring in legislation that would protect and offer people that support. And that contributed, some of the work I did contributed to the provisions that then were part of the 1996 Education Act. So. For me, it started with her. So in every walk of life, when I've come across in financial services and I saw the ripoffs that are happening and the bad behavior that led to the financial crisis, then I, I, I started to work on that because it's something I knew and understand and understood. The actual foundation, the, the foundation, the family foundation I started in 2012 was different from the campaign because I was very, very concerned after the financial crisis that small heroic community charities who really are the backbone and do incredible work at the coalface of society were going to suffer. And there were statistics that there would be three to 4,000 charities that were going to go under in that first year. Um, and so the Family Foundation was set up with a 10-year strategy to help and support small community charities doing really um, gritty work. And we would take them on for a three-year period and work with them to grow their governance and sustainability and their fundraising. And in the space of 10 years, I think we worked with over 52 charities. So I'm really pleased. Not all, not all were successful. Some failed and some we encouraged to fold into other projects and charities. But for me, that was, a, again, incredibly important work because where would we be if we didn't have those sorts of charities at a time when the government were talking about austerity? I found it incredibly alarming. And I, I mean, look at where we are again. It, it is almost come full circle that we're back in those really challenging times about what's going to happen to the social fabric of society if we don't have small charities and projects and community um, actions and initiatives. Um, so I think everything I've done has, has come from a place where I have experienced what happens when those challenging issues are coming about. As I said, I don't tend to go and look for a cause, if that makes sense. Yeah, it does. You can hear you're not an angry person just looking for a mission, but rather, you know, your motivation seems to be one about, I suppose, the good of society and and the glue that holds us all together. Um, 
and thinking about where those where those areas of vulnerability are and trying to do something to right um you know right the wrongs that are there for people I think the but, thing is, Naomi, that um, when you're a survivor, because I'm also a survivor of domestic violence, when you've survived and you've you see things from the inside, it's very difficult to walk away. It's very difficult to sort of go to bed at night. You know, I say to to when I give talks to, to children in schools, which I do a lot of, I say to them, you know, it's like you go you have to be able to go to bed at night with a light head rather than, you know, uh, you, you can't dream and be the best you can be if you have something weighing you down. And that knowing something is wrong and going and not doing anything about it, I think becomes a burden um, and weighs you down and doesn't let you be creative, be happy, be free. So I've always decided to unburden those burdens rather than carry them. I think it's really um, uh, there's something really that offers a lot of hope and optimism, though, because you're obviously really successful as a businesswoman. And I think on paper, you might also look to have come from quite a privileged, privileged background. I believe you came to England um, when you were 10 to attend a boarding school. And yet we know from talking on our podcast to other people who've been to boarding school that that's sometimes very difficult for people when they've gone to boarding school so young. And I, I wondered how that was for you. It it was never something that I ever thought would happen. I mean, I, I growing up in in a Commonwealth country, you know, I read Famous Five and all the sort of you know the the ideas of boarding schools being these wonderful institutions where you just had lots of fun and ran around. You know, it, it, the books painted it in a particular way. But um, and and for me, it was really tough because not only was I leaving my country, which was full of noise and color and you know vibrancy and a loving family, but I was coming to a completely new place because. My elder brother and I, you know, our lives were in danger because of my father's activism and political activism in a country where we had a, a very violent dictator. So, you know, things. So, so for me, it was almost that when I arrived at, at boarding school and opened my trunk, what I actually put back in the trunk and put the lid on was my previous life, um, and uh, that was really hard to do and very lonely. Um, and I sort of had to become. I, I felt. I, I mean, I think about it now so many years later, but sitting on the end of my bed, because it, I know it sounds odd, it never struck me if my parents were going to leave me when they took me to the boarding school. So I went, they found a tiny little boarding school in Eastbourne. And I was excited and, you know, we were excited about me going and I was excited about being in England and I could see, you know, learn English and I was an avid reader. So I was, had read so many of the British authors and probably most Dickens books and the Wuthering Heights and all those things before before I got to England at that age. But it never crossed my mind they were actually going to leave me. So when that day they took me, they unpacked my trunk and left, <clears throat> I felt totally bewildered and abandoned. I could not understand that they really meant it, that they were really going to leave me. And the thing, the thing was that uh, what happened was that when they went back to Guyana, then the restrictions of them traveling and sending money became even more restrictive. So he brought in even more controls. So I didn't see them very often. So everything about that I felt was familiar and, and loving had gone. And you just have to put away your emotions and you become tough. And I think that's one of the things, you know, people think people go to boarding schools. My boarding school was a tiny little dysfunctional, you know, the, the boarding schools vary hugely. It's not, it's not the Eatons of, not all of them are like the Eatons of this world, but people have this idea that you're privileged. Well, you are in one sense, but actually you are damaged in another way. 
in that you have to quite a lot of people I've spoken to and, and friends from my old school and alumni we girls we became we we sort of were told we had to become tough um and we couldn't show emotions we couldn't cry we couldn't you know we had to do everything within and stopwatch you know even washing my hair in the mornings you couldn't you, it doesn't matter what the weather was you had to you know you had to be done in five minutes or they'd cut your hair off which is actually what happened to me I had really long hair um because I wasn't meeting the time I had allocated for showers and my hair they literally put my put plait in a uh, my hair in a plait one day and cut it off you know that was because that's the rules and and you know there i think there's people sometimes call it sort of boarding school syndrome and it definitely is is a syndrome and i do think especially the stories of my brother went to a boarding school and the things that boys boarding schools do it does make you emotionally impaired so you're privileged in one way but you learn to lock things away that maybe you shouldn't, especially at such a formative year, years when you're going through puberty in those years in, in, in senior school. Um, and I remember just becoming different. I can't explain what that necessarily means, but I became different because I had to. Yeah, it's really powerful and um, to hear you talk about talk about that. And it, it's reminding me of a conversation that we had with Richard Beard, actually, who he spoke about how that level of damage that happens with boarding school, even when people aren't abused, but just that, you know, they're being dislocated from a loving family can then be so harmful. And he allocates a lot of the, uh, ironically, perhaps a lot of the the difficulties that we have with our government to the fact that so many of them have gone to boarding school. And it's quite interesting I do, to me. I, I do think there's something there, Naomi. I mm -hmm. think there is definitely something there because also it's even, and I'm just as I'm talking to you, I'm remembering this. And actually I hadn't remembered this for a very long time, but every, um, you know, once a month we had on a Sunday letter writing home. So you had to write a letter to your parents but they would read it so all your letters leaving the school and the ones your parents send you were read by the head of house so there was no sense of privacy either which I haven't actually really thought about for a very long time but that's that's very hard to not be able to say your true feelings and I think that was it so we could they were not only did you hide yourself but you became a fictional character of yourself because you weren't allowed to show your emotions it's interesting to hear you've 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 left um with this sort of strong sense of um fairness and and a wish to offer something good and make a good contribution to society but i was thinking about what's been happening of late within our country and how much um has been around in terms of corruption and your background in guyana and your dad's activism and wondered whether the corruption that's around triggers something in you that makes you have a need to fight um you know whether there might be an increased sensitivity to to that corruption having come from a country where the, i'm assuming there was if you had a dictator yeah yeah i mean it's it, it's there's definitely a thought process in me that says i didn't think it was going to happen here <laughs> i mean you know the my, my my parents again you'll find from that that um generation of of uh, commonwealth people who grew up in the commonwealth you know every evening we were made to listen to bbc world service my parents had you know my mother collected uh, you know english wedgwood china the the fact was britain was supposed to be this place that was the best in the world the best principles and values and you know to, and so arriving here and it was always to me this sense that it would never happen here that i'd escape that and it was never going to happen here but also because my parents um 
were very strict, but they also had very strong moral compass. You know, you did not lie. It was better to tell the truth and take the pain than to live with a lie and, and hurt other people. You know, there were there were lessons that that my parents taught me that were very important. And and I still talk to my children. I always have spoken to my children about, you know, is that and, and what we're seeing is that our leaders are not displaying those same principles and values. And yet they are the leaders. They're not just leaders from the point of view of our politics. They are actually the leaders of the soul and emotional state of our country and the you know, and what they're doing, their behavior. It's not what they're actually their behavior has set a trend in, in place, which means that we're turning on each other, uh, you know, dishonesty has somehow become acceptable, um, that half-truths are now replacing truth, that, but all of these things are very damaging because a, if you're not a happy, healthy, trusting society and populace, then actually that has an impact on everything and your ability to work, you know, the economy, your prosperity, your safety, your cohesion, your social, it literally impacts everything. And that's where, that's the thing that makes me more angry than anything. It's not their individual actions. It's the collective actions that they are choosing. And I'm not talking about one political party or another, because the flip side of, of that negative behavior is, to me, positive behavior is calling it out and being brave enough to stand up to say this is not acceptable. And I'm not seeing that bravery either. Instead, you know, there's people sitting on the sidelines sort of somehow thinking, and I'm told this quite often, it'll be okay. I want to know how it's going to be okay. How is it suddenly magically going to be fixed? You know, you need to put, when things are going wrong, you have to roll your sleeves up and put in the hard work to make it right. And uh, this idea that you can just uh, sit on the sidelines and, and somebody else will make, will do the work. Well, we're going to be in this state. We're going to actually things are going to get worse. So you've got, you know, it, it's the old fashioned, you know, the old saying, bad things happen when good people stay quiet. And so we've got both happening. We've got the bad people and the good people and, and, and the void is being filled by extremes. Um, and that's incredibly, incredibly worrying. Yeah, absolutely. I thought that was such a powerful statement, actually, the referring to the soul and emotional state of a country um, and that being the responsibility of of those of those in charge. There's very little discussion about these things, it seems to me. I mean, I, I suppose the way I see it, Gina, is that, that ever since the post-war building of our state, our welfare state, um, the counter-revolution has been uh, in action because it's essential for for capitalism at its extreme um, to make people uh, dependent and reliant upon the financial wizards to create things for us, but without any sense of community. So, so it's important for them to be able to erode any sense of community and people working together. Yeah, the the idea that that I mean our economic model, the whole trick trickle down was a mirage. It's it was not going to bring okay. It brought some. It has brought some people out of prosperity, uh, out of poverty, but it's created more barriers of when you you hit a buffer almost. So it's as someone once uh, I tried to explain it. It's a bit like you know the old fashioned um, um, timers, the sand. You know, it's dripping from one bit of the egg timers is what you do is you create, you give people enough at the bottom, but you create this pinch in the middle so they can't quite get up to the top. 
So it's sort of a, a you know that that barrier that's put into place. So you give just enough hope just enough ability to to create social mobility but you never really give them in total empowerment because what you've done is you've taken away the the societal community structures that, are, that help them do that so actually what we need economics to do is to trickle up rather than trickle down and that 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 was a mirage and uh, it's created more wealth than we you know than we've ever seen any time in any um society the whole idea if you look back at because uh, i'm a bit of a, a, a sort of a pet historian and I do look at what happens at societies in the past and how they have crumbled and you know it, it's it's the barriers it's the them and us that's happened time and time again uh, where people eventually realize that it's it comes down to them to create the change but th these are huge conversations but what I narrow it down to at the moment is that look how much unrest there is in the western world this is not just happening in the UK this is happening to most countries who have our economic model so something is not working. It's not just domestically. Something is not working. And what is, to my mind, has sped up the dissatisfaction is we have things that have come together, the perfect storm of the digital revolution, technology, what that's doing, the climate impacts and what that's doing, an aging population, what that's doing. And the fact that we have so much unhealth going on because of food, the way food and, you know, we, we, we eat and we exercise and all these things. So we've almost got a perfect storm, which means that, you know, everyone is feeling dissatisfied. Every, you know, there's so much anger and, and actually anxiety. There's so much anxiety in people that it's much easier for those to come along and say, well, I'll fix everything because people are searching for someone. They're searching for something. And so it's much easier than, and especially with the age of the internet is and social media, it's given them a platform for the, what I call the, the sort of, you know, the snake oil salesman to come along and promise that everything is going to be all right when they're actually not changing any societal models to make it all right, that it's somehow magically just going to be there. Well, I'm still, well, I'm slightly preoccupied by the poignancy of your account of your first day at boarding school that was very very powerful but as Naomi said yeah we've heard something similar if not exactly the same from a number of uh, people on these uh, podcasts and it, it really is kind of heart-wrenching really but I do wonder whether it uh, made some contribution to the sort of steely determination that you've displayed uh, on, on public display anyway over the past 10 years or, or so because uh, you know what you actually went through well we come on to that in a minute let's get on to uh, 2016 then and Brexit that's when you really kind of catapulted into you know, the forefront of public knowledge what did you actually do at that time? I was part of the whole referendum debate. And so I was traveling around the country on the Remain and Reformer, as I called it, side and on this debate. And when when the referendum result came through and it was for leave, I knew categorically because I'd been in so many green rooms that the leavers didn't think they were going to win. So there was no plan. I 100 percent knew that. Um, so all of a sudden there was talk of triggering Article 50. And to my mind, I was thinking, well, how do you do that? How do you legally do that? And also, how do you do that when you're supposed to, by law, 
because people forget this and actually we've, they've managed to escape this, that if something like uh, Brexit was going to happen, there is a requirement in law to do impact studies on the effects of it um, and what that would do to the country. And, you know, they managed to escape not doing any impact studies of any note. Um, so there was impact study requirement, but it was more that because I, um, I mean, not just my parents, but I was always interested in the way parliament and politics work, small p, not, not any political party. And back in 98, um, 97, 98, I started to get quite concerned looking at how many times things like secondary legislation was being used, how parliament was being bypassed, how the prerogative was being used. And I, and I was aware of those, those terms and those things and those mechanisms. So when Mrs. May was talking about triggering Article 50, I knew that that was illegal. I mean, I, I just knew it because it's quite plain. Article 50 is not a difficult bit of, it's not a, it's not <laughs> the best drafting legally, and but it's, it says quite clearly, you have to do, you have to trigger Article 50, leave the EU is a mechanism you, you trigger along the lines of your constitutional requirements. Now, our constitutional requirements is that significant changes to our rights have to go be voted on by parliament. It's, it's sort of 101 year one, university studies it's not it's not complicated law this this is we have a sovereign parliament if you want to change people's rights they have to be involved that's it it was like the shortest simplest court case to put together uh, so the actual substance of the case wasn't difficult wasn't difficult it was the environment the fr the fragility that our country was in the anger the way that people had been um you know mobilized to take one side or the other it was so adversarial and so hateful that in that environment, it was difficult to bring the case, but I was convinced that it was necessary, that we had to do this because if Mrs. May had gotten away with it, then that would have set a new precedent because you know that's how our law works. Whereas any prime minister in future could bypass parliament if they're going to change our rights. And to me, that was so unbelievably challenging to think that that could be the case in the future. And I mean, worrying beyond belief that, that that a prime minister, any prime minister could do that with a prerogative power. Um, you know, we would literally, it's a leftover of Henry VIII, we'd be back to Henry VIII. Um, so it, it's, that, that was my motivation. It wasn't directly about Brexit because I knew parliamentarians needed to be involved. Um, one of my biggest disappointments is that they just all stayed quiet. I mean, I gave them back their power and they did absolutely nothing with it. Um, you know, they could have gone and said, right, we are demand these impacts. We demand this a strategy. We want to see a plan. They didn't. They just all rubber stamped it. And I don't care which part. And I will put this at the door of all politicians at the time. L you know, they could have done something to make things better. And they didn't. They didn't speak out. Um, so that was really disappointing. And then the second court case against Boris Johnson was also about the prerogative power in 2019, because what he was trying to do was again close down parliament because i was aware that he was going to try and close it down for five weeks which believe it or not would have meant we would have crashed out with no deal look at where we are now on the fourth anniversary and the damage is doing to our country can you imagine if we'd crashed out with no deal but that's what he and, and mr cummings were were you know contemplating or prepared to do not just con contemplating and again i thought we can't crash out what happens to our country if we crash out I had started the year before looking at things like reading the WTO agreement, looking at what it meant to be a third country, and I couldn't find any legal, I'm speaking to lots of legal experts in the UK, internationally, in Europe, in Australia, everywhere, to find out how we would operate as a country internationally. And everyone kept saying, 
well, you, we have no idea. We wouldn't be dealing with the UK because you would now be, you would, and the term was used, a pariah state. And I thought, how could we possibly allow ourselves to sink that low? And it was incredibly disappointing that politicians, again, of all parties, weren't talking about this. This is literally their livelihood. This is the thing they should have been defending. It should never have been up to me to bring those court cases. But in the face of cowardice in our political class, I did. Yes, no, I see what you mean. But in effect, we were, we were seeing the exercise of raw power and how fragile our democ democratic and legal structures are when raw power, as in the days of the Wars of the Roses, for example, when raw power is being exercised. And we see that, I think, not just in this country, but obviously the United States in a similarly fragile state as far as its constitution is concerned. It's interesting, isn't it, David, that people say because they've got a written constitution, that's somehow a silver bullet. And I get, I get, you know, people in the UK who are advocates of a written constitution say to me, oh, Gina, I can't believe that you're not backing this or not backing our call and our campaign. And I say, because it's not a silver bullet. I'm, I'm an advocate of what I call a, a, a semi-codified constitution where there are certain things that are put into law, such as the prerogative power, such as the right to access to justice, such as the right of housing, you know, there, and there's human rights. There are some things I would put on the statutory footing, but I think there is some benefit of us having, you know, some flexibility where the separation powers means that the courts can get involved and check and you know, create checks and balances on those in power. So I think a, a semi-codified um, constitution is much more attractive hmm. to my mind. So the legal actions that you took uh, provoked a shocking and violent response from some quarters. Can you tell us what that was like and how you coped? At the time, uh, I just got on with it. I didn't have the luxury to read every bit. And I didn't. I didn't read the newspapers and I didn't look at what the social media was saying. I, I protected myself from that point of view. But obviously, my family did. My husband did. My, my legal team did. And would tell me things, and you knew, and and also because my business address was on the uh, in the public domain, obviously on our website, people would send lovely gifts. Um, you know, I had dolls with pins in it. I had uh, cartoon strips made of me being raped or beheaded or whatever it was. Letters that my children would be taken. Um, hor horrific, horrific. Uh, abuse that I never envisaged because in a way people assume that the social media bit would be the worst but I never saw it like that I saw that those are pe lazy people who are the keyboards and probably won't do very much um, and hide under their anonymity or fake accounts or whatever it is it's the ones who premeditated and put things made things put them in envelopes sealed them put a stamp on them and sent them or found out where my children to me they were much more dangerous and in the end it turned out that uh, a Viscount went to prison for um, trying to have me killed. And um, somebody else uh, actually had for five months a Facebook, a fundraising page up to raise money to hire a, a hitman to kill me. Um, my, my children were targeted. You know, I had letters which would say things like, because my husband is Jewish and me being a woman of color, that my children were Mongols and they should have been put down at birth. Um, or just the most horrific and, and the idea that as a woman of colour was not my place. My place was in the kitchen or in the bedroom, but not to speak up, 
that I was too stupid. It must be rich men behind me telling me what to do. Um, you know, the, the, the it, it painted a picture I didn't think was still in Britain. I've always been accepting that there are extremes on the fringes of society and all societies, but this appeared so mainstream and it unhinged an unhinged society had come to the fore and that was terrifying. And so we sort of, my way of coping is, or well, us as a family, we sort of withdrew from society. So we stopped going out as much. I, I tend to say that uh, we went into lockdown before official lockdown started because it was the only way we could survive. And it wasn't until it was over that I started. For example, my law firm collected, they had five huge black files of offensive stuff that had been sent to their offices, my offices and stuff we pushed back in the, in the, in, in the law. And I was looked after by a terrorist squad, a, a team. So I got all of it delivered to me one day. And it was only then when I started looking at it and I had the time and space to look at it, I shouldn't actually have done that, um, that I realized how horrific it was. Um, and it did have an effect on my children, especially my youngest daughter and you know her anxiety about us, me going out in particular and would I be safe? Um, so, you know, it has an impact on everyone, but I read those files and I remember my husband saying, you shouldn't be reading those, put those away. And then reflecting on what I did next, because I was quite prepared to just disappear as quickly as I'd come on, supposedly come onto the scene and go back to a lot of my other campaigning. I always said I'd never get into politics. I'd never get involved in any of this again. But after a few weeks and months of thinking over what I'd experienced, I thought I have a responsibility now to my children and their generation, because if I don't step up, you know, what happens to them? They live with the consequences. So the stewardship in that I think is is in all of us had to be exercised. I thought we cannot allow, I cannot allow them to grow up being told these things. I mean, I remember my mom, the kids coming home and saying, you know, from the bus or whatever it is, you know, things I had heard in the 70s when I came to the UK and I thought had gone away, I'd never hear again. They were being told openly, you know, all the things that we were being told, calling, being called a monkey, um, being told you're too stupid to do this, being told that um, actually you should, uh, you should, uh, no, I tell you, I mean, there's some of it was so horrific, but to be told, you know, they've been told that, you know, the girls are already being told that, you know, girls should go, shouldn't be in the workplace. All the stuff that's coming up that we thought had gone away. Um, I have the privilege of having had a public platform, even though it's negative, but I also, I see it as a privilege to have a voice where I can use that now in a way that's much bigger than I could have done before, even though I was a campaigner before. And why would I not, why would I not use that privilege to help others? It just seems to me, I'm not saying for how long, because I am not made of Teflon and I do cry and I do get upset and I do allow myself to feel I can't carry on it forever. It, and it is a, you know, it's a huge burden to have to put away your, you, you know, your own um, hurt to just carry on but you could do it for a little while um and one of the things I've, I've discovered in the last few years working with politicians from all parties is the amount of times women say to me if I talk about abuse or misogyny or, or death threats or whatever actually the death threats they'll say oh we get those all the time it's normal it's like somehow we should all accepted that it's normal and I keep saying to them no we have to say it's not normal you can't say it's normal but it's all it it's putting off people, good people getting into politics. And we need 
a different sort of culture and we need I mean for me now the reason I'm standing up and, and standing for election for the true and fair party and I've started the party is I think I need to be in the tent I'm not going to walk away I know a lot of people are walking away but I think I need to be in the tent now and and, and shouting from inside rather than outside such a lot of hate to cope with though you know that in your experiences um you know that you just touched on a, a fraction of what you read I'm sure but such a lot of hate I'm still thinking about how you can do these things. What is it about you that makes it makes you able to do these things? And, and clearly it's something to do with determination and persistence. Um, but I think it's also, or it sounds to me as if it's also to do with, you know, the Barack Obama, yes, I can. Um, because there are many things in life that I wish I'd done, which I never thought I could do, but it seems that you just go ahead and do them or try to do them at any rate i i think i think a little special superpower i have because i'm a marvel fan is that is is i don't mind failing and i don't care what people say about me if i fail at something and that's very freeing because if you're worrying and i try and tell my my kids this all the time if you worry all the time about what other people think of you then you're being held back and i i because of my surviving you know a, a very violent marriage and, and having to come here and change my life. I think having survived those things, I'm not afraid now because I know I can pick myself up. So that I think is my super How is that I'm not afraid of, of failing or, or having to pick myself up again. Okay. Good. So Gina, you kept hold of the truth and fair brand and you've now started a political party with that name. So can you tell us what the underlying philosophy of your party is and how many candidates do you think you'll be standing at the next election? Well, having just said I'm not afraid of failing, then uh, taking on um, David and Goliath's task of trying to stand a small political party in a system that's first past the post, but we're going to try because of the sentiment of the country at the moment, especially post-COVID, and the distrust people are feeling is that they're not going to bother to vote. We know it's something like a third of voters are saying, what's the point? Um, they're all the same. There's a huge amount of apathy. So it's trying to bring some hope, even within our system, to say there are things we can do. And what we can do is we can start by fixing the broken political system we have. This idea of a good chap model that where everyone's going to behave properly. You know, what we've done in, in the workplace, what we've done with governance of, of improving governance in public services in, in public private um, sector does not happen in politics. We, I mean, MPs don't even have a, a contract of employment. There's some really quick fixes you can bring in that would change that would change the way government works, our power works and how the culture within those corridors of power work. But it's not in the um, interest of the main political parties to bring it in because they benefit from the weaknesses of the system. And they all think, well, when we're in power, we'll be able to do this, we'll be able to do that. So I think that the main political parties, status quo parties are conflicted. Um, so in the system, why would they want to change it? And then, of course, we need electoral reform. So our main things are cleaning our politics, um, modernizing our democracy, and that includes electoral reform and fighting corruption. You know, we talk all the time about how much um, money we need for public services, how much more money we need. Actually, if you look at the waste our taxes are, you know, about 40p in the pound is, is wasted of our taxes. That's extraordinary. You know, it, through either bad decision making, bad procurement or just 
plain, plain corruption and cronyism. Just, you know, we need to have more transparency so we have better use of our taxes and our money. But also, um, it's about a place, even if we don't win, it's, I want it to be a movement where we have hard, um, we tackle hard topics and have difficult discussions about where we need to go to next, because I don't believe any politician in the main political parties are not just um, unwilling to change a system. I think they're unwilling to tell people the truth that in a future phase where, for example, because of the digital revolution, for, you know, it's for every 50 bobs, jobs, there could be one. And that will impact not just the lower paid and the manual workers, but people in professional classes as well, which is the first, you know, throughout society to see professional middle classes are going to be impacted by the digital revolution. Plus we have an aging population, plus we have such an unwealthy, unhealthy population, and we have an unhealthy, unhappy population, and then we, there are the impacts of climate change. Politicians who stand up and say, the structures, systems, models we have of the past are not fit for the future. And you have, we have to work together, roll our sleeves up and work together rather than promising every day, change, everything will be okay. Because surely if they do that, all they're going to do is create more division and more uncertainty, and more hate. Because people, if you keep on promising people that things are going to be better, that change is coming and you never deliver it, you're actually just creating more and more anger and, and, and you know, discontentment to my view. But not only that, it's our children who are gonna to have to pick up the pieces of all of this. So it's a place where we can discuss and something that's very, very, I'm very passionate about is the idea of a, of a wellness economy because to me, health and happiness is so important. And a wellness economy that is the heart and soul of the of local community. So we go back to local and community spirits and community cohesion and a holistic approach towards partnership of private, public and community, civic, to me is the only way we will survive going forwards. And that's a conversation that's not happening in the UK. It's happening in other countries. Quite a lot of other countries are bringing in models. And are, there's some really exciting projects going on. But we, I don't believe in the UK, are doing enough on that. So that's the sort of thing I want to start talking about and bringing people along with the idea of the benefits that come from us seeing every policy area through the lens of health and happiness. Excellent. So, so you're a a party with a very sound uh, philosophy. Naomi and I are particularly interested in health and in criminal justice, including prisons. Where do you stand on, on those two areas? I think it's unsustainable. Having an NHS that was built after the Second World War and expect it still to be operating in a sustainable manner in the 21st century is unrealistic. So I think there do have to be changes. And I think a lot of prevention, much more work on prevention needs to happen and building awareness and catching symptoms early and communities coming together to do some of that work. So my view is that the, the what we do, the NHS is there for emergencies. It's not there for keeping us healthy. That might sound an odd thing to say, but becoming, you know, simple, again, simple fixes such as bringing in a salt and sugar tax, um, deciding on what's in their food, you know, the, the food, we have to tackle the food and drinks lobby. We have to be much more stringent on a food and water plan, national strategy for our country. We have to be more supportive of our manufacturing of food in the UK, in, in our local communities. 
but also on our regenerating our high streets so they become the place where you have respite, community care, where people can go to and have talking therapies, music therapies, you unburden the um, NHS of so much that's dragging it down when it comes to mental health services, um, problems, obesity problems, dementia problems, social care, you know, a lot more of those early state can be done through the community um, and community cohesion, especially against a backdrop of I'm saying these people who are not going to be working in the future. You know, we have to realign our workforce. So it's much more of a social workforce um, that has to, and we have to have a realistic conversation about a living wage for people, because if they're not going to earn it, it has to come from somewhere. And then that's also linked to taxation, because if we haven't got people working and the people who own the assets of the businesses of the future, the technology, big technology um, giants, do, are not domicile in our country, who exactly is going to be paying into the public purse and paying taxes? You know, the, the, we have these are the sorts of areas. So one area is not siloed away from another. So be it the NHS, be it education, be it our economy, they have to work together. Policymaking has to be much more joined up in its thinking than it is at the moment, because education, I think, is an area that's being massively ignored. I mean, one of the, just three things I'd, I'd bring up quickly that go back to the NHS is I think we have we have to come up with policies that uh, improve in retention. So say, for example, that we have a loan write-off scheme for anyone going to public services, NHS, say frontline services, if they stay for seven years. I mean, that would be a great incentive for them to stay here rather than going abroad. Um, you know, those sorts of things are things we really do need to start thinking about, the long-term benefits of policy rather than thinking about just a three to five year cycle, which is not very helpful. Um, so we've got, there's there's a lot we can do in, in society to, to change things. But also, you know, if you look at, you know, every time I look at statistics, I become, I could become more depressed when I look at how, not just mental health, but people who, you know, who are on the waiting list for, uh, you know, the long-term sick in our country or the uh, epidemic of, of self-harming that's happening in our young people. Um, the use of, uh, you know, the increased use of drugs that's happening in our country. There's so much that's not working. When people tell you the term broken Britain, it's not just a throwaway line. It actually is broken. And what people can't, I sort of think most people know that, but then what replaces it? You know, it's how do you make that leap to, well, what next? And that's what I want to try and do. And my fellow um, candidates, so there's five of us in total standing at the True and Fair Party. But what we want to do is bridge that gap and say, here are some stepping stones of how we get to the place we need to get to. I, I was at a conference in Oxford 10 days ago. We were talking about this kind of thing and, and practically everyone in the room, you know, a nice bunch of liberal-minded people, everyone in the room agreed that that, that somehow the NHS, for example, needed change. Um, but the point was, as I said, um, everyone knows that. Everyone in the NHS would agree with that. But they also know or they believe that with this particular government, for example, when they say change is needed, they're really saying we want to cut the budget. How do you convince people that that's not just the case. It, it, it's a false. It's a false economy to say that cutting services or public services 
is going to help your country because actually the way you actually have growth is through taxes, more taxes, or growing the economy. And an unhealthy workforce is not a productive one or a creative one, because actually the other thing is not our productivity is suffering, but it's also so is our R&D, so is our development. We, we are missing, you know, Britain was, we were, always, we were a country that invented things. We don't invent things because people don't have the creativity. Um, but you have to, you know, you we have to have the NHS working from the point of view of those, as I go back to it. So it's not about cutting money to public to nhs or public services it's about using that money better um because there is there are lots of waste and i mean even most people in the nhs i speak to you know there's lots of waste and lots of things that could be done differently um but the politicians are not interested they're not even interested in getting around the table and talking to you know the the, the junior doctor or well, i hate the term junior doctors but the doctors who are striking you know and the answer and i have to say i i'm very alarmed at some of the noises coming from the labor party too you know, the idea that you replace GPs with salaried doctors means they have no real understanding of how community doctoring uh, uh, GPs work. Um, and the idea that uh, the way they're going to cut the waiting list is to bring in more private uh, uh, resources from private sectors. Well, who do they think works in the private sector in these private hospitals? It's a finite source. It's the doctors. You know, it's it's it shows a real naive. Um, you know, they're making political promises that worry me it's it's also the same with childcare. it's you know you can't you can't make these promises when you can't deliver on them when we have you know so the idea as well that we're going to improve the access for women and, and girls access to justice well where is the where's the capacity in the police force where's the cultural change within the police force you know these you can't make these promises you have to just you can't just drop them and expect everything's going to fix it's that's not the way it works I think um, the, the, what happens with our country is it's kind of each area is dealt with as if it's a separate part, a bit like the medical model, actually, in health, that each part of the body is dealt with as if it's a separate organ rather than thinking about how it's all related to one another. And I think what you seem to be talking about is trying to think about, about things from a systemic point of view so you think about how things weave together and just thinking about the food and sugar tax that you referred to and we know that food uh, salt salt and sugar tax sorry salt sugar processed food not only affects physical health but also affects emotional health as well but I also you know thinking about the systemic um, point that you're making you know should, are you planning to stop MPs from having second jobs or making money on the back of things like um, the food industry? Uh, you know, it's, I, I was shocked to see that three Labour MPs were um, three of the highest, three of the MPs earning most from the private health industry, which doesn't offer any reassurance at all when you're thinking. No, no, about no, no. When sector. I said when I said the main parties are all the same, I said that for a reason. I mean, look, there are some really quick fixes. Um, uh, yeah, no second jobs, full stop. That includes appearing and having um, shows on TV. Uh, you know, in other countries, they're not allowed to do that. So, you know, no no second jobs, full stop. They actually have two jobs already. One is looking after the communities, the other one's being the legislature. So they already have two jobs. Um, so we need reforms there. We need, a, act a, we need a, a contract of employment so we can keep them to account because there isn't any. Um, Nolan principles put into law. There's no legal footing of the Nolan principles. We need reform of the House of Lords. There should be really be 400. Get rid of all the, you know, the gentry, the the lorded gentry, um, and the uh, religious. And I think, you know, for me, the House of Lords, people who talk about reform there, again, including the the Labour Party and all the main parties, 
have forgotten the fundamental question, which is, what is the job of the House of Lords? The job of the House of Lords is to be the oversight legislative chamber. And if you look at all appointments through that lens, you get down to about 350 or 400. I mean, it's just nowhere on earth you'd have the, the people or the size that we have there. But then these things also happen in, it's all the way down to um, local government as well, because we've got something like, I think, 47 local authorities who are on the brink of bankruptcy. You know, um, you've got six that have gone already. So the idea when Labour talk about it, it's all about more localism, more, more devolution. Well, I believe in, in community localism, but not just handing your purse strings to the local authorities. How does that help things? Councillors may have good intentions, but they don't tend to have the qualifications to look after what is bigger than most businesses, a budget that's bigger than most businesses, and to know where to invest it and where to put projects. You know, we need to have much more respect and bringing into the fold, into our political system, technocrats and experts. You know, they're there for a reason. <laughs> um, you know, and we we have we need we need them to be involved. That's why I said about being much more joined up and holistic in the way we we work going forwards. But you no, know, they, they they I mean it, it or it's even as nonsense such as severance pay. You know, even the, when this whole idea that it's only one party, not another, that has these ridiculous. You get sacked as MP or found to have done something uh, you know horrendous in your behaviour, and you get a golden goodbye. I mean, sorry, what? I mean. It's just it, the whole system needs a complete oval. Remember, it goes back to this idea that everybody is a good chap who goes in there and they're going to behave properly. Well, that's so naive and so outdated. The whole thing needs to be completely redone. The systemic failures can be addressed. It's just the willingness to do it. I'm sure most people in the country would agree with you, Eugenia. But because of first past the post, smaller parties tend to be criticised for dividing the opposition votes. What's your what's your response to that? So I it, yes, it is difficult in a first past the post system. So you have to take a different approach. And the approach I take, and I've encouraged other parties to look at, including the main opposition parties, is look at your target seats. So for example, Labour have a target, uh, 150 to 200 target seats. Lib Dems have about 30. Um, Labour, uh, uh, Conservatives, I don't know what they're up to, but we're not interested in what they're up to anyway, because we're the opposition party. So, and I know the four seats are the green target. So we, we've chosen our seats. So we are not standing in any of the target seats of any of the opposition parties. And we, these are traditional conservative blue wall seats that nobody's ever really stood in and had a chance. So what we're saying is we are a different option. There's also in the seats we've chosen the five, for example, I'm standing in Epsom Mule against what was Chris Grayling's seat, but now he's stepping down. These were, were conservative seats who have a large majority of what I call one nation Tories. So, and they're saying, this is not our party, but they can't quite make the walk over to Labour or Lib Dems or won't vote. So we're appealing, we're offering a new offering to that disillusioned centrist, you know, business-minded, financially illiterate and, and socially conscious um, individuals who want to have a different option. So, Gina, we've touched upon this to some extent. Throughout your life, you've never shied away from confronting bullying and corruption. And as you've described, it's, sometimes it's felt to be at great personal cost. Where do you think that strength comes from? I think it's nature and nurture. I think I was always a really annoying little girl at school who asked the teachers why, why and pushed every boundaries and didn't care. I went to a convent in Guyana, so and I'd get told off and end up in whatever punishment there was. Didn't stop me asking again next time. Um, so I think it's a bit of both. Um, 
that there was sort of I think I was about five or six or something and we lived in, in in a nice house but there were people on the street who who were you know children playing the street without shoes and things and my parents used to tell me off and and I'd have punishments for losing my clothes or my shoes or my lunchbox or whatever I never lost anything I used to just give them away through the gate you know because I felt why I had enough I didn't need so I think it's it's always been there so it's but it's also you know we are what we experience and it's also the resilience I built up from the things that have gone wrong in my life um and so I think it's it's a combination of both that means that I'm 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 quite comfortable speaking out and speaking up but I'm like everybody else I do have days and it does have you know where I'm feeling terrible where I feel like giving up where I can be depressed where I just cry where my family things are not going so well in the home because of my actions and I know it's my responsibility you know all the things that happen to a normal person happen to happens to you too and sometimes I, I think people have this vision that you you are not like normal you're not like everybody else and you never cry you never have these um, emotions and you're just strong all the time um, you know, if somebody is strong all the time, then I don't think they're being authentic. Um, you've got to feel, you've got to be you. And that's one thing I have tried really, really hard in my 30 odd years of campaigning and everything I do. I try really hard not to become tough and not to become the person that people see um, when I'm out and about. Because I think if you're in, if if you do become tough, then you become inflexible, and I think you you forget to feel. So I try really, really hard, um, and and one of the ways I do that, or I I really try and discipline myself on this, is even if it's an hour a week, I tend to sit on my own with no noise, no nothing, and I just check in on me. I just sort of think about what's happened to me. I listen to my voice. I think, you know, people forget our, our voice and our, you know, the little voice in our head and the feeling in our stomachs are there for a reason. They're very strong. There are there are protective instincts from when we were animal, you know, our animal instincts are still there, but we've been socialized not to listen to them. So I try really hard to put aside the time to be really quiet and reflective. I love that message of trying not to be tough, Gina, because I think that's something that both David and I have recognised from working in the prison system, that you have to work very hard to not come across as tough and not just be connected to toughness when you're seeing a lot of the sort of harder, harder side of life. So really nice to hear that message um, and be brilliant to have a conversation with you today. But I just wondered if people wanted to get involved in what you're doing with the True and Fair Party, how would they how would they find you? What What can they do? So, so we're 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 there. It's true and fair party. Um, dot uk. Our website's there. My candidates, my page, candidate page, and all the other candidates' pages are there. I mean, the the thing is, we do need help, and I do want people to think about us as a movement of hope because the political party in itself is it's not just about that. It is much more than that that we're trying to do. Um, and uh, it's unless we work together. I mean, I don't have faith like other people that politicians will fix our country. I think it's got to come from us. Um, and it's it's and if people can come together and we can work together and share not just the pain but the hope and the, and the plan that comes as well and I think we've got a chance because you don't get the political system is unfair but so is the media so you can't get any media through if you're a small political party it's almost impossible so it's very very difficult um, actually while I mentioned uh, media the one thing I would change <laughs> tomorrow is to ban foreign media ownership of our media I think it's completely undemocratic that we have people who are not UK citizens owning our media. 
it's uh, you know if you want more a more destabilizing um influence then it's one just there um so i think the the all these things need reforming but again conflicts of interest are everywhere um but no no true and fair party uk if you join it just you know we just have a look and see it's for people to to make up their own minds thank you very much indeed gina Mello. a pleasure to meet you and such a nice person not tough at all thank you david hanami that's very sweet thank you